AJ, I'm just done JS. Just done JS. And I'm just... leaving because I can JS. This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code JavaScriptJabber, you'll get a $10 credit. Let's face it, bookkeeping is hard, and it's not really what you're good at anyway. Bench.co is the online bookkeeping service that pairs you with a team of dedicated bookkeepers who use simple, elegant software to do your bookkeeping for you. Check it out at bench.co slash JavaScript Jabber for 20% off today. They focus on what matters most, and that's why they're there. Once again, that's bench.co slash JavaScript Jabber. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 202 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from the snowy sunshine of Pleasant Grove. Amy Knight. Hello. Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. A uh, quick shout out for React Remote Comp coming up here in about three months. We also have a special guest this week, and that is Justin Meyer. Hey, everybody. Very happy to be here. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm the CEO of Bitovi, a JavaScript consulting company. We've been around for eight years. I'm the lead author of JavaScript MVC, which was a library of Node, framework of Note, maybe well, it was built eight years ago, probably peaked six years ago. And then I built CanJS and now released Dun.js and Steel.js and a bunch of other libraries that you may or may not have heard of. So you want to give us a brief overview of what these are? Yeah, so kind of the history of that would be I left Accenture like eight years ago because I was disillusioned there with just that how that kind of consulting operation worked. I felt that their business model didn't work very well, and I wanted to do something where it was, I would say, more people were actually developers were most of the people working on a project. So I started a JavaScript consulting company because I'd done a little bit of JavaScript work with a friend of mine. And back then, this was, you know, eight years ago, there was really nothing. Uh, it was really easy, perfect time to start doing JavaScript consulting and building frameworks and tools and things like that because nothing existed. Built the parts of JavaScript MVC while working on this big team mobile application and then just started doing consulting around that. So JavaScript MVC is basically what everybody, I think, 
what everybody uses now. It was uh, dependency management, build systems. It was MVC, which is nobody does any anymore, but templates and models and, and views. And then, then testing and stuff like that baked in and, and documentation engine. Anyway, so I built CanJS and that, so we built JavaScript MVC and then JavaScript MVC wasn't taking off really because Backbone had been released and Backbone was really small. And I think a lot of people wanted something smaller. It was too much to take on all of these dependency management and all of these tools that you just wanted something simple that would, would, uh, you know, work for a small application because I don't think people were building a lot of big apps back then. So we extracted the MV star parts out of JavaScript MVC and released them as kind of a standalone package, which was CanJS. And then since that time, we've been upgrading and maintaining CanJS. Uh, we also split out the tenancy management parts and the testing parts and the documentation parts all into individual libraries. And I've been maintaining those for, you know, four years now. And then about two years ago, we decided to kind of get the gang back together again and rebuild what was kind of JavaScript MVC. But JavaScript MVC was built in Rhino because that was the only <laughs> JavaScript interpreter at the time that would run on the server or like the most popular one. Uh, we rebuilt it all in Node and upgrade and add a bunch of new features and then the result is now DunJS, which comprises of CanJS, SteelJS, FunkUnit for testing, and DocumentJS for documentation. And then it has a bunch of other little sub-libraries that solve different problems like server-side rendering. I guess my question was, because I'm big on making comparisons, since there's so many things out there right now, and for people like me who are not as versed in all the different options, immediately it came to mind, like, how is this different than Meteor? So maybe before we go too much further, you could kind of compare it to that. So I think it's similar to Meteor, except that it runs off of any backend, right? You can, as long as you're making RESTful services, and even if you're not, it really doesn't care too much what you're doing on the backend. But then feature-wise, it's very similar. It it uses, it still has real-time, but it uses a technique ret, very dissimilar to what Meteor does. Uh, it doesn't have a database, on the on the client, um, and it doesn't assume a certain database or kind of back end. Um, instead, it uses what we kind of call set algebra to be able to do real-time updates of the list that the site knows it is loaded. So Meteor is probably what it's closest to. Uh, I would just say it's... I said this actually at the Utah JS meetup the other day, is that if I'm trying to be as intellectually honest as possible, I think if your backend can be written in what in kind of node and you you can want to build off what the meteor expects in the backend, meteor is probably the more appropriate solution. But you want to be writing Python or .NET on the backend, I think that DunJS would make your life a little easier, or I'm not even sure how possible it is to do that in Meteor, but it seems like it's not super easy. Cool. I love honesty. It's good. So to me, that sounded kind of like it's similar to React in being smart and similar to Angular in being a front end. And I'm not really familiar with Meteor. <laughs> I didn't like it when I tried it. <laughs> so I need a different comparison to make me feel better about this. So aside from Meteor, <laughs> what is it like? Okay, so you guys, I, I listened to the um, Tools Fatigue episode, mm -hmm. and people were talking, you guys were all talking about the problems of how long it takes to set up a 
JavaScript application. What Dun.js does very well, and I think Meteor helps with and Ember helps with, is that it sets up server-side rendering, real-time behavior, dependency management with uh, ES6 and uh, hot module swapping and high-performance builds and all of the stuff that you really want and should be doing, testing built in, documentation built in. It has all of those things ready to go right away when you kind of initialize an application. So in that way, it's similar to Meteor. But when you say React is smart, I, I'm not sure what you mean by smart. Uh, if you mean like it only updates, React's real thing is the, is the virtual DOM diffing and things that kind of derive from that as a technology. It doesn't use virtual DOM diffing, but it uses um, you know observables. And I can go all into the difference between where I think observables are more applicable and the, or the benefits and disadvantages of observables versus diffing in terms of technology. But I guess I need to know what you mean by React is smart. Uh, that's what I meant. Well, as far as I know, I mean, people talk about React like it's a framework, but it's really just a view. So yeah, it's it's the that it, it, it the, the real time ness that it enables is the diffing and the being intelligent about not wasting. Like uh, something so can happen and it can update the page, and the page can update rather than like with Angular, if you do it in a very naive way, instead of doing it the Angular way, then you can end up actually waiting for a list to load. Yeah, so those things are all solved in, in CanJS. When I say, but to be specific here, when we I talk about real-time, React really doesn't help you with, when I'm talking about real-time behavior, when you want to say, hey, if this person makes changes on this page, how are we going to communicate those changes to another page so it updates correctly? You have to set up all of that plumbing in yourself in something like React, where CanJS, it's kind of more baked in for you. It's baked in, and I, I think this is actually one of the coolest parts of it, is it's, when I was talking about it, set algebra. If you that request, sounds cool. I want to hear yeah. more about that in a minute. The set algebra, it is a cool sounding word. So, you know sets like Venn diagrams? Mm -hmm. I love those. Yeah, those are great. Uh, when you request your data from a service layer, let's say, of course, a list of to-dos. You want a list of to-dos that are let's say, do today. Well, you're requesting a subset of to-dos. Um, your parameters to your, your, or your, the request might look like, you know, slash to-dos, question mark, do equals today. But that represents a subset. And what we can do is say that, oh, by knowing that the person requested to-dos do today, as long as we're getting messages when to-dos are being created, we know if the to-do being created belongs in that set of to-dos, or if to-dos are being updated, if they're moving in and out of that set of to-dos that are due today. And we can basically update the list that the client has loaded. So the, the client's loaded a list of to-dos uh, that are due today. And we can basically add and remove things to that list using set logic. And you could create your own set logics that handle you know, things like sorting and ranges and, and that kind of thing. So you don't have to have kind of like a database in the client and you don't have to have special, uh, what is it called, live query or something. You don't have to have any of that. You just have to have basic RESTful services. Just Somehow your server just has to send these updated, created, destroyed messages to Dun.js, and it takes care of updating everything for you. I like Hopefully it. that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that makes sense. I, I appreciate the explanation. And just so you know, while I'm on the show, you can go as computer science-y as you want, because I'll make the listeners enjoy it <laughs> with my mind. <laughs> awesome. 
I can go very computer. Good. I like that. I, I would love to go computer science. You just have to stop and answer Amy's questions. Yes. I enjoy it too, but yeah, you might have to answer questions along the way. I'm Googling as you talk. Here's the thing is, you know, we've kind of gone a little bit deep into the weeds as far as how DunJS does its thing. But what I'm really curious about is, let's say that I am Joe Programmer. I'm reasonably new to the whole front end, front end framework kind of area. Hey, I'm Joe Programmer. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be Joe Programmer for a minute anyway. But uh, I, I guess the question is, how do I get started with DunJS? I decide, I look at it, I see the benefits, and I'm like, you know what, this really looks like what I want. So how do you get started with an application? And how do you build your app from there? How do you architect it so that it lines up with kind of the DunJS way? Great question. So there's two on the DunJS website, there's two guides. We have a very basic guide that's uh, building the real-time chat app, the Hello World. And it's built with all the performance, flashy features that DunJS provides. And you can export it to uh, a native desktop app and through through uh, NWJS. And you can export it through an iOS app, through Cordova. That's really f- a fun one. But we also have a restaurant ordering guide called Place My Order. And that's a much more comprehensive guide that walks you through how it's built architecturally, how to set up routing. And then what I really like about it is it shows you how to set up tests uh, with continuous integration, continuous deployment through Travis and through Heroku and sets up things like content uh, uses a CDN. So that shows you how to more or less architect it and how to make it work in kind of a development ecosystem. Yes, NWJS is Node WebKit. And then I would say if to follow that up, it's really about once you're kind of set up with the DunJS is mostly a it's a super framework, but most of the meat of what you're building is actually CanJS. And then CanJS has a lot more docs and guides and things like that. Architecturally, it's MVVM is the architecture. And this is what I, I really like about it is how, well, I would say that there's two things to, to care about. One is what we call modlets. This is something that I've been big on for eight years. And every time I give a talk, which isn't very often, there's one thing to kind of learn, I think, from what how Bitovi develops. It's the modlet folder organization, where if you're writing on a, working on a module, all of its tests, styles, documentation, and a demo page, and all code for it are in one folder. I really disagree with the approach where sometimes well, people have like a test folder separated from where their actual code is. Uh, that's being tested is we like to make it so that everything works in one folder. You can write that module, test it, see it working in a demo page, separate out from the rest of the application. So that's how everything is organized in a DunJS application. And then it's MVVM. So most everything's um, you're building custom elements that are controlled by a view model. Uh, an observable is the view model. And when it changes, the template automatically updates itself to reflect those changes. So yeah, Charles, I don't... Yeah, I put in the chat, uh, I, I just have this distaste for certain terms like webinar, <laughs> like yeah. it's a horrible word. And then I recently <laughs> heard Micronar and Modlet is right up there. I'm sorry. The, the oh, name no. just kind of makes me go, ugh. But, I loved it, Justin. I loved thanks. it. I got you back, Thank bro. You, uh, <laughs> well, if you don't like the term, I hopefully I can convince you on the practice because yeah. for us, we build a lot of big systems and... If you have a lot of developers cranking on code, you don't want to have to load the entire application to see your widget. And I actually think it helps people design better modules if they're building it so that that module can, they can actually 
make a demo page for it, a test mm -hmm. separated from the rest of the app. Yeah, it reminds so, me a little bit of components in React or in Angular 2. And, you know, the, it makes sense. I mean, you have sort of an encapsulated section of functionality that you then manage through whatever other means you're using to pass messages around on your front end. So, I mean, I like the concept. I just hate the word. <laughs> I think the difference is when I'm talking about modlets isn't necessarily like how you build stuff. It's how you act. It's actually how you organize your files. Okay. You have a folder and then the test for that same, the modules in that folder and the test for that module is in that same folder. So could we just call it an NPM module and be done with it? You could break out your entire application into all of its own NPM modules if you wanted to maintain all of that and have individual tests and things like that and set up the continuous integration on each one of those. Well, that, that's that just, would be a modlet, right? I mean, like by definition yeah. that we're talking about, that's a modlet because that's, no, that's what NPM that's, does. Or, well, it's what the GitHub plus NPM pop culture push is. I, I can't agree. But that's actually the highest form of modlet, actually, where if you were actually if you were building your entire application where every single module was published to NPM or your local NPM and had its own tests and its own CI, that would be I've, ne I've never done it that way. <laughs> that's intense because you'd have you just have a lot of like a boilerplate to be setting up. This is actually something that Dungeon.js can help with is it even if you're working on a non can.js based app and you were hey i want to re make a react plugin but you wanted to make sure travis was set up easily and the test would run automatically and it would be exported to every single format amd common js uh, so that people could share it really easy and publish it to npm dungeons has like a plugin generator that helps with that kind of stuff but I, I i know of no project that has you'd be talking about if you have hundreds of files, you'd be talking about hundreds of different projects, all published to NPM. I, I just think it's unlikely that someone would actually go to that extreme. So I guess my other question is then, where does can end and done begin or vice versa? So is can this modular system or is that a different piece altogether? So yeah, let me let me break it down a, a little bit. CanJS is the MV star, MVVM parts. Okay. So it's Closest to that, you would compare CanJS to something like Angular or React. Okay. Can we just clarify MVVM real quick? Absolutely. It's a model, a view, view model. And what I mean by that is it has models that help you get data from the server, typically connecting to a RESTful interface. So REST um, JSON, one part. Yes. And then kind of there's two parts to a model, really. There's getting your data and then actually the modeling part where you convert it to some type of type where I don't want just raw to-dos to come back from the server because it's nice if I have methods on them, can put helper mm -hmm. functions. That's what the... It's kind of like Backbone's model and CanJS's model are very similar. It has the view part, which is... It's actually got two main, two different real-time... or um, when you, I think when AJ was saying real-time, live updating view. So if you change an observable, the template changes automatically or what's rendered into the DOM is changed automatically. Hey, so now when you say observable, do you mean like the RxJS observables or are you talking about like a more classic definition of observable? We're talking about a classic form of observable than kind of the event stream type observable. CanJS has this thing called computes, which are you might have seen in something like Ember or Knockout, something very similar. CanJS, I think, does a really good job of straddling with its observables the 
functional reactive programming world of like uh, event streams and what like you know React is big on and things like Elm, right? Where you have you kind of have your state or source state, and then everything is derived from that through functional programming or through event streams. That's one kind of model. And then there's the object-oriented model where it's, hey, it's nice. I can create a pagination kind of object with methods on it that has state with it. And you can call methods like, can you go to the next page or go to the next page? Or what's your what would the offset and limit be derived from which page you're on? CanJS's observables, I think, are a good middle ground between those approaches because it allows you to, if I have, let's take paginate, for example, if I have a uh, limited offset as the state of kind of where I like my where my pagination is, I can easily derive values from that to say, oh, can I go to the next page, given my limit offset and count? Can I go backwards? Am I at the end of the full set? Or, you know, what is the next page number? Things like derived from your source values, it can, you can take those and drive other values. But you're building those, you can build your own custom observables. So it, it bridges both worlds because you can derive those custom values, um, but you're deriving them within the context of an object-oriented object. <laughs> so that's something that is like understandable by user or by like other people who want to use whatever your module's producing. Think of it as like, I, I think sometimes when people are in the RxJS and event streams world is the APIs that those things end up producing, those other streams, they're not easily consumable because people like objects. They can reason about them easily. But it's great because of how it manages state. Everything's derived from your source state. What I'm saying about trying to say about CanJS is it kind of bridges those worlds as you can derive observable properties and make your methods reach in and change state. So you can have nice APIs and derive values at the same time. So just quick, concrete example, you were talking about pagination. Mm -hmm. And so just give me like the two sentence version of how a blog with pagination type model goes into what you were just saying. I just need to hear it in a short version one more time to, to fully grasp. Okay. If there was pagination on a blog, I'm going to create a pagination observable. And the only values that really matter in your pagination observable, really the state of your pagination, is a limit and offset, if you will. The, the offset and maybe the count of total number of blog posts. But so what's the derivative value in, the, in this case? Derivative values might be like, are you? what is the page number, right? Which would be your offset divided by your limit. So if, you're off, if your offset was like, 60, but your limit was 20, well, then you're on like page three. Okay. Or can you go to the next page or can you go to the previous page? And so you can observe the derivative values as well as the values is what you were saying. Yes. And you can okay. also change the derivative values and that will go and flow into the source values. So I could say change the page to five and you can wire it so it'll update the source values. Okay. And the other thing, which I think it does really well, is handles memory leaks really nicely. If you've used event streams, you know you've got to kill them if a person goes from one page to another page, stop the whole chain of observability. Dun.js is able to infer, like compose computes with other computes and know like, hey, this compute cares about this other 
kind of, you could think of it as like event stream caring about another event stream and it can flow that whole chain. So once, once there's no listeners on kind of the end of the derivation, all of the listeners will be kind of torn down all the way back up until to the source state. So all memory is cleared. So at the risk of going down the rabbit hole, how do you prevent, uh, loop issues where a thing depends on itself, depends on itself. Cause like when I first started with angular, I hit into that problem like day one. And cause I didn't, I didn't understand well enough the nature of observables. Is that yeah, so, something that happens here too? So yes, you can, that can definitely happen. We have um, a batching thing that, that happens internally. So you could still, I mean, other than kind of letting you know, like, because there's, um, we can, we can detect if something is observed on itself, but we can only, we don't do it. We only do it for very direct cases. We can't do it for like huge cycles. We maybe could, but we only warn in the small case where it's like very, you can think of it as when it's very clear that you're binding to yourself, we can identify that and let the user know. But for the most part, I, it's not something that at least on, you know, the 2000 issues that we've kind of seen that hasn't been something where people experience too much in CanJS, maybe also because events are synchronous in CanJS. And it's not dirty checking based like it is in Angular. It's the observables produce their own events immediately on a change. So maybe spotting and identifying and resolving those issues is a little bit easier with CanJS because you can walk back and see the like, oh, what produced this change? Oh, I can synchronously, you know, in the oh, call okay. stack, walk up and see, oh, it was the same thing that's, you know, uh, listening same property is changing itself. Oh, that's maybe easier to identify because everything's synchronous. Oh, okay. That makes sense. So JavaScript MVC, right? That was your sort of first version. And now uh, this CanJS, DenJS is sort of version two, right? Mm -hmm. And you said that uh, you were doing MVC with number, with version one with JavaScript MVC. And now you've talk, been talking about using MVVM. Why the change? And well, that's kind of it. Why the change? Because MVC isn't even, even though I wrote JavaScript MVC, how to practically apply MVC in all cases still isn't even clear to me. I think there's just a ton of ambiguity on what is really a view in MVC can, can often be not clear. Where in MVVM, I think it's and kind of this observable track where you take where you're, you're writing all of your business rules and logic in this unit testable observable that is independent of the DOM completely, that's just so much a better, a better method. Like I can create a paginate view model, if you will, call those methods on it that derive from the source state or change the first source state totally independently of the DOM. And so I, I think just view models encourage that behavior a lot more. It's more clear what belongs where as well. I gotcha. I, I kind of feel like that MVC was one of those things much like the uh, theory of relativity when Einstein was asked that they understand, the reporter under he says, I understand only uh, two people in the world really understand the theory of relativity. And Einstein says, well, I can't think of who the other person is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know the accuracy of that anecdote. But yeah, MVC was one of those things that everybody talked about, but every implementation was significantly different. And, and that's why I asked the question about the MVVM, because I feel like it's the same story again. Like all these acronyms, like they don't mean anything. You have to understand what the person interpreted it as. 
Yeah, but at the same time, I think MVVM and uh, Model View Presenter MVP and a lot of these others were initially called MVC, and then it became apparent that what you had there, the model was pretty clear-cut what its job was. The view was pretty clear-cut what its job was, but the whatever you know, whatever the other thing was, functioned differently enough to where it didn't make sense to call it a controller. And so we came up with other terms like a view model, which is tightly tied to the uh, behavior and performance of your view or the presenter, which, you know, isn't as tightly tied and just provides information to the, the, you know, the entire view or things like that. And, you know, but yeah, the definitions are still fuzzy. I think, I think you're right. My question is, I feel like more and more people are going towards flux. So why do you think that MVVM is still a good option as opposed to just using flux? So I think Flux trades reasonability for composability a little bit. In in my experience, and we're building uh, a React app, React and Flux, and well, I shouldn't say it's really Flux, because everything has to go through that main highest level component, or a lot of things end up going through that, it makes that kind of a central linchpin of pretty much all application behavior. Which you know make make that file can it can grow really really big. Where when you have observables, so React is kind of forced into this because of how it works, and I, I think just frameworks in general they they're all trying to solve the observability or state change, and then how do you reflect a state change in different ways? They all have different ways of doing it, but React's way with diffing and no observables and things like that it ends up forcing that main component to grow really big, where something like MVVM with observables, you get what people, one way of calling it, if we're bringing up the physics, is kind of like spooky action at a distance, (laughs) where, oh, the same instance of a to-do is in these two different components, and one can change, and then the other one would just know about it without kind of having to propagate that event all the way up to some main component and then have the component kind of reset the state all the way down. They can find side channels to set up communication with this data. Now, that makes it so... This is one of the big things I think that I like about Dun.js and, and the way that you build things is it's all based around that modlet idea, whether you like the name or not, is that everything should kind of be self-contained and built to work on its own. And that, in my opinion, is much easier when you have observables and you're expecting kind of the same instance and one thing can change in one component and it'll just change if the same instance is somewhere else without having to have a parent component orchestrate that. It's kind of like flux and stuff like that can sometimes be a leaky abstraction, I think, where you, you know, to like prevent a a React from updating itself, you have to kind of like export some ID to let React know what's the key so it doesn't, you know, re-update, uh, so it doesn't kind of recreate that same kind of component in the view model. There's issues like that that Flux creates. Now, I shouldn't say like the idea, I, I, that's what I'm saying. I think the idea of what Flux and Elm and all of those things are doing where you have and functional reactive programming where you kind of have your state and your application is a... Um, in some ways, just a mathematical reflection of your state. Uh, it's a really, really solid, strong idea. I think Dungeons does a good job of being a hybrid of those of those approaches, but that's the, that's kind of the problem I see with Flux. I don't know if any of that makes sense. Hopefully no, that's it. It's kind of like a big meatball. And what I would say is not spaghetti, 
but it's like very, it's like a meatball in the middle of straight uncooked spaghetti that you can easily, <laughs> easily see the lines coming out of that meatball in, in react that, or flux, I should say. So it's, it's trade-off. I've seen what people have to do with those state, state stores when they want to start kind of combining and cross-communicating state across different parts of the application. It, it can get a little strange. So let's assume for a moment that I want to convince you to use Dun.js and Can.js. Ask the questions that would help me convince you. Well, that's kind of what we, what I've been doing anyway. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not me. You? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been asking those questions at all. My question is, does it look really good in a to-do app? Because that's all that convinces me and anybody <laughs> to use a framework is how Who good it looks in a to-do app. using it? No. Right. No, I, I think if you want to ask that question, I think there's a good question to relate to that. One of the things that I think we hear a lot from the React community, the Elm community, the Redux community – and we've been hearing the same thing from the functional reactive programming community for a long time is it's a ton easier to maintain these applications as they get, you know, year, months, years down the line in the maintenance mode where we're not building it anymore. And it's not the same guys who've written 95% of the code that are still writing as people, new people come on and new people have to just maintain the existing app that those apps are very easy to maintain and easier than your typical OO app. So can you talk maybe a little bit about that, about CanJS and how that relates? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would love to see how that really looks in practice because all of these things are so new. I think that the hardest thing is really when you transition someone new on a project, how quickly they can understand it. I don't. It's hard for me, and really this is a hard thing because I don't know how that they're I know this is a this is something that people kind of, in my opinion, it's one of these things that people they're just saying and people are kind of taking for granted because I guess I haven't been exposed to the real evidence of this. The famous kind of flux or react video where they're like, oh, the the count, we're keeping track of the count. That's something that totally works very similar in a CanJS application is that your count is derived or, or number of um what is it called? The count of uh, unread messages is derived from these other source state values. And in the case of CanJS, you have observables that derive that value. And then, you know, whenever the source changes, the values update themselves automatically. So I don't know. I guess I haven't been presented by the evidence where it actually deviates that much. The only place that I can see it is maybe with two-way bindings is that where you're getting that spooky action at a distance where... Well, this has its kind of its own value, and the parent can have a different value. But in CanJS, you can get e very easily set one directional bindings and events going up. So you can switch to that. I, mean, I guess it doesn't enforce it, but you know, two way. I, I guess two way bindings. I like I said, it, it's a that spooky action at distance can be very nice. I think for composability where I can say, like, here's a paginate model, and this can use that paginate model, and this other type of widget can all use that exact same inst paginate instance and cross-communicate with it. And they don't have to all build their own version of... I guess in the example with React and Flux, I've seen is, like, if you have something like paginate, you have those derived values. You kind of derive them and then add them to the object and then pass that all around everywhere. If you know what I'm talking about, like, can you go to the next page? That's a property that kind of gets added to your paginate object and then passed to all of these different widgets. It kind of feels, I don't know, 
that you do very similar stuff with CanJS. So I don't know, maybe maybe you guys can illuminate me with the more of the rationale behind this. Well, I think one of the reasons that people say those sorts of things has to do with the um, the way the actions uh, work in the single direction one-way data flow is you have these actions. This is a nice list of actions. So everything runs through one place. So the state can't uh, mutate itself while it's trying to render out. And also, I think another reason probably is because you also tend to get this nice list of, oh, here's all the valid states in your app. Yes. Or, or valid actions, I guess, is really what I'm talking about. They're not valid states, but here's all the valid actions in your app. And so when for somebody new that comes on, it's very easy to go through and see, oh, this is everything that the app does. And for maintenance, when it's time to, oh, I want to make a change and how some functionality works, I know exactly how this functionality flows because it all comes through here. So I, there's no, it's a lot easier to avoid the problem where I touch something over here, but in this far corner of the app, it breaks. Something yeah, and I, I think, yeah, that's, I would say that, I mean, that you could still do that stuff with CanJS because it has one-way bindings and you can propagate events back up to the parent that it can listen for and update itself as the only source of truth. And I guess if enforcement of that is what you need, then that's, uh, you know, CanJS won't provide that. But I guess I, in a big apps, I just, I don't see the parent knowing and being the end all be all of everything and having to have exporting, you know, events really to connect to the parent as the way that, you know, I, I kind of want to want to build in multi-page apps. Like, think about it like a you know, a, you've got a single-page application that represents multiple pages. Each of those pages should really, in general, should have its own state, and doesn't really need to communicate that ever up to the parent. That's really more connected to the state that's implied by the the URL. I know you can have substates and components, and then you wouldn't propagate the state for just that page up to the parent. I guess I just don't see it as I don't know. You could do the things with CanJS if you want, or you can just use two-way routing and then the value, or two-way binding, and then the value, you don't have to set, create it, you just change your value, and then you know that the parent's value is going to change. Okay. So your opinion is more along the lines of you not necessarily thematically agree with all of that, that you can still write your app to be maintainable. CanJS and DunJS, they enable that sort of thing. But the restriction of it isn't necessarily a required thing. Yeah, I guess it's a lot of boilerplate, right? To have to dispatch an event. And then really a lot of times all that event is doing is up the, calling an action that updates the root state. Where instead you could just change your state like because it's connected to the root state. And just change that value and then it's done. Uh, um, that's a very common complaint among Flux and Redux users. Yeah, so I mean, that's what two-way binding provides. Is just like, well, I could just change it. So I guess I would just say with, I don't know, it, this is such a, <laughs> it, it would depend on the situation, right? Like in a lot of in a lot of apps that, you know, you get more transparency probably by always going up to this uh, source state. But at some point, you, the app might get big enough where that becomes, like I said, that big meatball. That thing grows and grows and grows with methods and just to listen to the bindings and then call the state where all of the children could effectively be doing that themselves. Very good question. So what about app size with CanJS? How big have apps gotten with this so far? So I guess one thing to talk about is when you talk about DunJS, DunJS is, you know, built with CanJS is the big part. So if you're talking about 
apps built with Dungeon.js, there probably aren't too many yet because uh, you know it's only been out since November. But really, if you're talking about things built with CanJS and SteelJS, the dependency management part, we've built some enormous, you know, 500 megabyte gzipped and minified apps. Uh, we not the whole, you know we obviously don't make that the production JS. We have one, one really cool thing. All the Webpack folks who might be checking this out love Webpack or JSPM. Check out SteelJS for its dependency manage for dependency management. It's very similar to those, but two benefits. The first is it has a really nice high performance bundler that adds an additional step toward compared to like the Webpack bundler, and it doesn't have to run on the file system to load an application. It's kind of like Require.js where you it can do everything in the client, which makes building demo pages or individual test pages much easier because you don't have to like set up a build for those pages. But so yeah, huge, 500 megabytes, gzipped, I don't know, hundreds, hundreds of files. I mean, we've been building stuff on this technology for eight years. I, unfortunately, the, the most high profile website that's been built with it, I can't, actually I can talk about uh, store.apple is built with CanJS because Reddit, someone posted that on Reddit, so I'm allowed to talk about it. Hooray. I did kind of have a question about this. So if I'm kind of, as a newer person, deciding what I want to learn, I'm trying to pick something where I have to learn as little about the specific API as possible, and I can just rely on as much of just plain JavaScript as possible. So how does this fit into that? Like, would I be able to rely on just knowing a lot about JavaScript, or am I going to have to learn a lot of things about can and done? So depends. Uh, that is a, a concern for us right now. You know, that's one of the best things that I think React got right was making templates, you know, kind of feel like JavaScript as much as possible. And it's actually something we have in CanJS, but it's kind of deprecated. It's old embedded JS templates, which were kind of, you would write out JavaScript. You're, you would have, the biggest thing, hurdle that you would have to learn, I think, is, is handlebars, uh, which is what its template engine is right now. We're actually making, we're, we're right now we're working on Levi's.com that's using, it's using CanJS's observables, which are really its best part with React's templating engine. And we're going to have that as like a plugin to Dungeon.js. Um, and we're also planning on making a version of our templates that use go back to using JavaScript instead of handlebars type templating. But if you understand handlebars, you, you should be fine. All right. Well, if people want to go check out CanJS or Dungeon.js and uh, find out a little bit more about what they're about, where should they go? They should go to dungeonjs.com, check out the features page, and then or a, a local meetup in your area. I've been going to a lot of a lot of meetups lately, so I might hit your town pretty soon. So just look out for it. All right, sounds good. Well, let's go ahead and get to the picks. AJ, do you want to start us off with picks? Yes. So I've got a couple of good picks this week. In case you were not aware, Taylor Swift uh, albums are like Pokemon. You got to catch them all. And uh, my sister pointed out to me that there was a limited edition album that very few people have that you might not be aware of. I really can't pick it because I haven't listened to it, but it's called Beautiful Eyes. And I think that I don't think there's it's just like alternate versions of songs that are on other albums. I don't know if there's any songs that are specific only to that album, but I I'm going to pick that because I didn't know about it. And, and now I do. And, and now you do. And if you're a Swifty, then you can feel more complete. 
uh, AJ, Taylor Swift, she's one of those weird artists that doesn't stream her music, right? You actually have to like go somewhere and pay money for just one album. God bless her. God bless her for standing up for owning something and actually like having it in your hand. Uh huh. So I am actually God bless her with none of my money. <laughs> well, I mean, he wasn't blessing her with any of your money before, was he? So, sure. When she was streaming, she what he was. She was getting some of it. Now she's getting none of it. Oh, I, Zilch. I am. I hate streaming. I, I hate this whole. I just, just one day, why didn't get a digital copy? Right? Yeah, digital copy is great. Digital copy is absolutely awesome. But um, oh, I, I'm. I'll post an article. I, I got to go find the link, but. It's an article about what happens when Amazon videos die. And, uh, I mean, we've already seen this kind of stuff happen before, like when they took all the Disney movies off and, and inevitably it's going to happen. Like somebody's going to change the policy and all those, you know, thousands of dollars that you've spent on things that you think you own, you're going to find out that you really don't have and they're just going to be unavailable and you're going to get a, oh, sorry, we changed our policy one day. Um, so I am, I'm all about like, if you have it in your hands, you own it. I'm just renting the music, and I love it. I get to rent every music, <laughs> renting it all. And that's, I don't want that's, it. And that's what YouTube's for. So, or or you know, Spotify or Pandora. You know, you get it all for free and never have it, and and only have it available when you have internet connectivity. And and that is that is great for people that are super techie. And anyway, but leaving that rant, uh, I'm also going to pick Protodome. That is a band. Uh, they have stuff available on Bandcamp, and you can choose to pay nothing and get it, or you can choose to pay something. The song that I really like is called This Heart Has Too Many Broken Pieces, and I can't remember which album it's on right now, but it's chiptune music or video game music. So if you love that stuff, you'll love it. I'm also going to pick City Libraries because they all have websites and they have an event calendar on them and you'll find out that there's cool stuff like adult coloring book classes and adult story time with professional storytellers and AJ uh, that explains a lot. <laughs> no, I'm going to I'm going to start I'm going to start going to the library more. Well, I I realize so this is what happened last year for my Facebook friend year in review. Like Facebook was like here's you and it shows some pictures of me and then it's like here's you with your friends and it showed my mom and my sister. And then it was like, here's things you've done. And it was like me standing still. And I have a cool life, okay? I have fun. And I don't care what Facebook says. I do, too, have friends. We're programmers. There should just be a picture of the computer. That's your friend. <laughs> but uh, so I decided this year I'm actually going to try to go do things and, well, more things. Because I did things last year. I did. But I'm going to try to do more things than like take pictures and stuff. And so I've been looking at like city event calendars and like free stuff and paid stuff and whatever. And I found the city library calendars to be very helpful. And then lastly, I will pick The Crucible of Doubt, which is a book that has been mind blowing in my personal dis- rediscovery of faith that I'm going through right now. And, and it's by the same authors of the book that I picked last time, The God Who Weeps. All right, Amy, do you have some picks for us? I do. I have a fun one and a serious one. I'm going to start with the serious one. So the serious one, somebody sent me over a link in the Elm Slack channel, but it is a site called learnxandyminutes.com. And it has a ton of different programming languages on there. And it just kind of runs through 
the syntax and stuff. So for things like Elm, where this is like something that's very, very different than any language I've ever learned before. So I actually found this to be really, really helpful, especially for Elm. So if you are interested in Elm, check that out. You could also check it out for other languages, although I can't say anything about those because I haven't looked at them yet. My fun pick is something called Which Cat is Your JavaScript Framework? Unfortunately, um, I don't see can or done on here, but it's still pretty fun. They have all the regular players in here. So if you are in for like a little joke or something, you can check that out. Uh, that's it for me this week. All right, Joe, what are your picks? Okay. Well, I want to start off with a tweet that John Papa tweeted recently. And it was basically about having manners on social media, right? And not treating social media differently than you would treat a real-life interaction. I'll post the the tweet itself, the link to it. But basically the point was, and it was actually he tweeted this actually after he and I had a conversation about somebody who had criticized one of my courses on social media over Twitter, I think. And the criticism was completely valid. Of course, uh, you know, there are, everybody's work is subject to uh, imperfection. And what I had done wasn't necessarily perfect. And by his opinion, it didn't necessarily, he didn't like it, which is fine. But the way that he made the comment was really kind of like poor in poor taste and something you would never say to a person's face unless maybe you were a sociopath. But because it was on social media, it's something more common, a type of thing that we see. And so that's going to be my pick is just being a good citizen over social media and, uh, treating social media the same way that you would treat uh, real-life interactions. So that's going to be my only pick this week. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to plus one that one on email as well. I got an email uh, when I sent around an email saying, hey, I'm going to be in Amsterdam, so if you're from there or going to be there, I'd like to meet up and hang out. I got an email, and it was, why the F are you emailing this to me? And, you know, I emailed him back and said, I don't know who's in Amsterdam, so I let everybody know and figured the people who didn't care wouldn't you know, wouldn't bother him. Yeah. And I got an email back just saying, yeah, I was drunk that night and I'm real sorry. And you know, a lot of, a lot of times we just don't think about it. We're kind of in some headspace, either, uh, you know, assisted by some drug or not. And, uh, you know, or lack of sleep. And so, yeah, you know, plus one on that and think doubly as hard if you're, you know, if you're sort of emotionally compromised. Right. Well, you never know. It's just not a good good way to treat life. There's far too many interactions. That it's hard enough when you're talking about these impersonal interactions to just give the wrong impression anyway, yeah. to say something that you don't necessarily mean. But add on to that, the anonymity and the, te the temptation to just say what you feel without thinking it through and saying, well, would I say this to a real person that was sitting in front of me and not like filtering it out, right? And it just becomes... A big habit. You never know who you're talking to and how your comments may affect both your life and their life, right? So I think it's just always better to act on social media the way you would act in person. Yep. Amy, I know tons of people. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say to Joe, for what it's worth, everyone that I talk to absolutely loves your course on testing <laughs> on site. Well, so. thank you, Amy. <laughs> you got to stop talking to his mom. <laughs> oh no these aren't his mom <laughs> yeah when amy had her facebook year in review here's your friends it was my mom here's things you've done and she was chatting with my mom <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that's it all right i've got a couple of picks these are more along the, the marketing line of picks i recently set up a set of emails uh it is the top 10 episodes of javascript jabber ever 
uh, at least to date as of the beginning of this year. Anyway, it was kind of fun to compile, but I'm using a few tools to get it out there so people can use it or to get to the emails. So the first one is SumoMe at SumoMe.com. And uh, it's a tool that allows you to put marketing tools on your website. So if you go to javascriptjabber.com, um, it'll actually slide down with a, a full screen place where you can put your email address to get it. It only does it once. Uh, I figured that's not too awful intrusive, but then if people want it, they can get it and it's real easy to find. The other tool I'm using there is Drip. That's uh, at getdrip.com and it's a terrific email marketing tool that I've I've probably picked on the show before and I'm super, super happy about. I also went to a game night earlier this month and uh, played a couple of new games that were fun. Uh, the first one was called Seven Wonders, and uh, it, I, it's kind of hard to explain what it is. It's a rather involved game, but it was a ton of fun. And it's one of those games where you can kind of see what everybody's doing, and you can see how they're trying to win the game, but you don't really know who won until the end. And sometimes you're a little surprised, oh, you stacked that up. But effectively, you build certain resources and use those resources to get other resources that count toward victory points. The other game we played was called Shadow Hunters. It's kind of werewolf with life points, and uh, it also has different cards that are like weapons or give you some special ability this way or that, and that's also just a ton of fun, so I'm going to pick both of those. And finally, I'm, I'm just picking a ton today. Um, two of my book series that I've been listening to on Audible came out with new books. Uh, the first one is The Reckoners by Brandon Sanderson. Uh, the third book, Calamity, just came out, and I'm really itching to read that one. You haven't started it yet? Not yet. I want to go back and listen to the other books again. I uh, went down to the pre-release and got a signed copy. <sighs> I'm, such a, I'm such a geek. I didn't know he was doing that. Yep. That, that would have been fun. Uh, the other one is the Iron Druid Chronicles by Kevin Hearn. And the book Staked came out last week. So I picked that up on Audible as well. I just finally finished listening to all the books that lead up to it. I didn't listen to the... There are like a couple of hour, hour and a half long short story form parts of the story that I didn't go back and listen to again. But yeah, I'm in the middle of Staked right now because that's the one that I ran across first. So I'm super excited for that. That came out last month. And uh, yeah, so I'm really enjoying those. So I'm going to pick those as well. Justin, what are your picks? So my first pick is the BB-8 Zero, which is like a little remote controlled BB-8 that is amazing for keeping uh, lazily keeping crawling babies entertained, mm -hmm. which I have one of those. <laughs> uh, and then the, the next pick is something that I recommend to everybody who likes science fiction, which is the Hyperion Cantos. Uh, it's a series of four books uh, written by Dan Simmons. If you like crazy science fiction fantasy and like in some ways just being exposed to uh, things that I wasn't exposed to, the writings of John Keats before, I highly encourage you to pick up the audiobook or the real book. I'm reading it now for maybe like the 10th time. Highly encourage people to check that out. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Thank you again for coming, Justin, and giving people an opportunity to kind of mentally explore this particular topic in those libraries. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll wrap this up and we'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at JavaScriptJabber.com slash Jabber 
and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests. 